Let us turn in God's word to the epistle of Paul to the Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to break into the chapter at verse 18 and read through verse 31. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. It is the word of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his inspired word for his name's sake. Let us take a moment to bow in prayer and ask God's blessing on the ministry of his word. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice again today to know the reality of thy presence with us. We thank thee that thou hast promised that where thy people gather, even so few as two or three, 
in thy name, that thou wilt be in the midst. So we are confident that thou art in our midst this evening. And we rejoice, O Lord, again, that we are meeting together around the sacred word. And how we pray that thou would be pleased to pour out thy blessing upon the ministry of thy word. O Lord, open every heart to receive that word tonight. And grant, O Lord, that thou wilt fill me with thy Spirit's power to the very uttermost for the proclamation of thy word, for the exaltation of thy Son. O hear our cry, we pray. Abide with us in these moments, we ask. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Our text is verses 24 and 25 of Romans 8. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. The challenge facing the people of God is always how to respond to the world. And indeed, we could add not only how to respond to the world, but how to respond to the various trials and disappointments that afflict the people of God in their lives. Meeting that challenge requires a godly perspective on what has already happened, that's the past, and what is sure to happen. The problems of the first century were similar to those of the 21st century. That may be shocking to contemplate, but it is the case. We don't tend to believe that assertion. We suffer from what I call a double-barreled arrogance. We believe that our technology is superior to everything that previous generations had, and that therefore the challenge we face of dealing with the world now is greater than it was then we tend to think they had a pretty easy time compared to what we face. It's really, as I said, just arrogance. But you see, the technology of every age, and this is another shocking statement, every age has technology. People today think that technology was not invented until they came along, until somebody thought up the iPhone or the Internet or whatever. But every age has technology, and the technology of every age is the vehicle by which the world expresses its penchant in that age for wickedness. Just take as an example the 19th century invention of the telegraph. That was invented, at least it was used for the first time, in 1844, it increased the speed of communication. 
And that was a key factor in the Civil War that soon unfolded afterward. But the telegraph itself was not less moral than the forms of communication that already existed at that time. The telegraph sometimes conveyed sinful communications, but it was not sinful by itself. Sinners have always been inventive. First century technology was just as intrusive on the people of God as what we find today. The first century featured false religion, unbridled perversion. No, perversion was not invented by our current generation. And open lust. Celebrations in the first century were loud and raucous and included drunkenness and pleasure-seeking, and no doubt the use of various kinds of narcotics. Not much has changed. Then, as now, the question for believers in Jesus Christ was how they were to conduct themselves in the face of those around them who were intent on fulfilling every desire of the flesh. Paul's answer in his epistle to the Romans was that the people of God knew the truth that set them free from an ungodly life. They knew what would become of them at the end of life. They knew their position as the redeemed people of God, and so they did not have to fret about missing out on some aspect or other of the world's pleasure. The message that Paul delivered to the believers in Rome nearly 20 centuries ago is the one the Lord has for us in our time. Without doubt, the world in which we live has changed dramatically, even in a little less than a quarter of the 21st century. Next year is the 25th year of the 21st century. So it's something to contemplate that we have lived almost a quarter of this century. But that which lay in quiet concealment at the turn of the century has burst into the open. And that which existed behind locked closet doors has become part, sadly, of the routine discourse of daily living. Everything about the world around us suggests preoccupation with that which is abnormal and bizarre. How can you make it weirder seems to be the catchword of the day. The moral declension an abandonment of Orthodox Christianity. You've heard of the de-churching movement, I'm sure. That's the result of apostate religion and of willing compromise with it on the part of those who should know better. Those who try to follow the Lord in this age appear increasingly out of step. 
They feel the pressure to conform to the manners of the world around them. Even though those manners reflect spiritual lunacy. The people of God should not feel deprived. The devil likes to play the game of getting you to think that you're missing out. But your peace and blessing do not depend on sharing, even if only in part, the excesses of the popular culture around you. In the words of our text this evening in Romans 8, 24 and 25, we learn how the Lord's people know contentment in the chaos that surrounds them. The immediate context that we read, beginning at verse 18, deals with expectancy. That which is yet to unfold, Paul said, is so far superior to what we now experience that there's no comparison between the two. Even the natural creation around us, we read, yearns for what is better. The word that Paul used was groaning, groans. The natural creation yearns to be restored to the condition in which God created it. We look to the glorious destiny that awaits the people of God. It will make everything we have endured worth it. It will be worth it when we see Jesus. In these verses this evening, then, verses 24 and 25, we find that this expectancy opens the way to genuine contentment in a society that reveals discontent on every hand. Whether it's discontent with traffic laws or discontent with political figures, there is a path for genuine contentment. We confront the answer to every tendency, then, to be discontented. So here we find in our text the joy of hope against apostasy. The joy of hope against apostasy. When leading politicians and there are many, look for political advantage in the destruction of unborn people and seek to justify that destruction as somehow being humanitarian, then you know that you live in a world that has gone mad. Apostate religion and the idolatry it embraces yields the fruit of wickedness on a large scale. So how are you to keep your sense of balance? How can you avoid the tendency toward irritation and even despair? You confront that tendency almost every time you drive a car out into traffic. And be behold what people do. 
The answer to how you can avoid that tendency is through the enduring message of the gospel. Our text this evening has both a retrospective and a prospective. This text presents salvation as an accomplished truth that is rooted in actions in the past. But it also presents salvation as that which is a prospect for the future. How we cultivate the spirit of patience and optimism is to reckon on the great truths that Paul expounded in all his epistles and especially in this chapter. This is a chapter that deals with assurance. It's an extended argument. It rises from the foundation of which we read in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And it leads us to the certainty in the verses that precede our text immediately. The verses that we read beginning at verse 18 and through verse 23. Verse 22 says, especially, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We learn in the words of our text that we cannot live by sight. We live on the basis of what God has revealed and what he has caused us to believe. I always like that text in Psalm 65 about the man whom God has caused to approach unto him. We walk in this world by faith. And this text deals with our theme and with salvation in three ways, which I lay before you this evening. First of all, salvation's confidence. We are saved by hope, Paul wrote. And the force of the expression is significant because literally, Paul said, we were saved by or in hope. Hope is a major New Testament theme. And here we find the reality of how that hope saves us. Now we suffer from the degradation of English language in our time because hope now means little more than a wish, maybe even a delusive wish, for something to take place. But hope in the Bible has two facets, especially in the New Testament. One is solid confidence, that's what I like to say, that rests on the infallible revelation of God in his word. So that's one of the senses of hope. The other sense is the sense that occurs in the immediate context that we just read, it is this desire, 
this aspiration, this expectation of the glory that the people of God await. Hope in that sense focuses on what is to come. Both senses compose the word of salvation in this text. We were saved in hope. That is, we were saved in the sense of deliverance from something. The deliverance, which is from God's judgment upon our souls for sin, the deliverance happened at a point in history, as we considered this morning, and at a point in our lives individually. The point in history, of course, was Calvary. It was the cross where our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And the point in our lives was the time when the Holy Spirit used His power to bring us to the knowledge of the truth. We read what uh, Dr. Cairns used to refer to as the five links in the chain of grace in verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8. And in particular, we notice the words of verse 30, Moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called. There is God's effectual calling. The Holy Spirit by His miraculous power, awakening our souls and bringing us to the knowledge of the truth. From what were we saved? We were saved from guilt. We were saved from condemnation. So, in the words of verse 1, that's the deliverance. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Peter also wrote about this deliverance. And we find that in 1 Peter 1. We referred to 1 Peter 1 this morning. 1 Peter 1, verse 21. And you might want to put a mark in 1 Peter 1 because we will come back to it before too long. Verse 21. Who by Him do believe in God, that is, by Christ, we do believe in God who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. That's deliverance. That your faith and hope might be in God. But the deliverance was not just from guilt and the condemnation upon guilt, but it was also from the domination of sin and the grip of the world. Let us turn to Paul's epistle to Titus. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness, unworldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
We were saved by Christ from the world. And so the Apostle John in his first epistle could say effectively, stop loving the world. Love not the world. You have been delivered from it. And that component of salvation, I'm sad to say, has almost disappeared completely from the contemporary scene. The idea that God's people have been delivered from love for the world. Not many churches or fellowships today emphasize that kind of deliverance. Because if they did, it would be counterproductive to the creation of evangelical empires for people to be confronted with that separation from the world. So when we look back, we see that we have been saved from the world. That's the past, the retrospective, as I put it. But this hope has a future aspect as well. We were saved in hope in the sense that the hope of glory is now resting upon us and acts within us as a motivation to purity. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. Having spoken about the day of the appearance of the Son of God, we read in verse 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. In verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. There was probably part of the wonder of which we were thinking this morning about those residents of Jerusalem suddenly confronting people who were immortal. We find it in verse 2. We don't know what we're going to be. We can't fathom it. But we know that when he shall appear, that is when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that hope is the motivation of purity. So this confidence must dominate our thinking as we live in the corrupt world. Salvation's confidence. Hope speaks of confidence. But let us come now to the second truth in our text. Salvation's atmosphere. The hope of which we read in our text is optimism. It's unyielding optimism. It's the anchor for your soul. Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And verse 18. That by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have 
Notice the language here, a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here is the hope that is the anchor for the soul. We've been speaking about apostasy. And apostasy is not only a religious condition in the land, but it is the seedbed of immorality on every hand. How can Christian people rejoice in the face of apostasy, they can rejoice because they have an anchor, the anchor for their souls. That is that hope of which we have been speaking. They know what's going to happen. Nothing like that. Nothing like knowing what's going to happen. Well, we don't know all the details of how it will all come about, but we know what's going to happen. We don't see the fulfillment of it yet, but we rest in the hope that is the atmosphere of, their, of salvation. So God's people trust in Christ. They depend upon Him. And that's not just a matter of a creedal statement. But they know that Christ is theirs, and he will not ever fail them. They know that the fullness of Christ's promise will come to pass. And so they cast aside their fear, the tendency to be fretful. In Psalm 37, the psalmist writes, fret not thyself because of evildoers. The force of that expression is stop doing it. Stop doing it. Yes, there are evildoers all around. That was certainly true in first century Rome. And if you were to read some of the history of that period, you would find that to be the case. But the psalmist said, don't fret yourself. Don't make yourself upset. Don't become depressed and discouraged and dismayed. You may hear the news of the latest outrage of apostate religion, wherever that apostasy finds its expression. And you may hear it with equanimity. It doesn't, it doesn't enrage you. It doesn't make you feel that everything is coming, crashing down, because you know that Christ, our Redeemer, our King, is in control and He will bring His purposes to pass. He will do it. That's the atmosphere in which you must live as followers of Christ in a world that lies increasingly in the grip of darkness. Christ 
is building His church. And once again, we tend to think of ourselves as somehow unique here where we live in the world. But I can tell you that there are places in the world where Christ is building His church. And sometimes that building takes place at high cost. But He is building His church. He is saving His people. He didn't come to save His people only to abandon it as hopeless because no one will listen to Him. Christ will scatter all the threats of the puny rulers of the world. I hear the fulminations of these people. And maybe it's just a feature of being older now, I don't know. But I hear the fulminations of these people and I just have to laugh to myself because Christ is going to scatter them. The atmosphere is one of victory. And that atmosphere leads us to the third aspect of our text this evening, salvation's expectancy. And here we come especially to verse 25. The point of verse 24 is that if you could see the deliverance now, there wouldn't be any need for hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. But in verse 25 we read, but if we hope for that, we see not. Oh, there's the key. We are looking for what we cannot see. We may imagine it on the basis of what we read in the Bible. We read in the second psalm. And anytime you become discouraged, it's a good thing to go back to Psalm 2 and read that short psalm again. Because it says that Messiah is going to break all his adversaries with a rod of iron. And if they're his adversaries, there are adversaries as well. He's going to break them. He's going to dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And we can read of that event in the New Testament. Let us turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse 7, Paul writing to the believers there in Thessalonica, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. What was Paul writing to them? Rest in your hope. Rest in that which is your confidence. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints 
and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. I love this passage, because here's what's going to happen. And we can know with certainty that here's what's going to happen. We hope for that day. We can't see it. If you were to look around you, you would conclude that it's not going to come, that the devil's going to have his way. But we wait for that day to come with the certainty that it will come. The waiting of which we read here is with patience. Or as some marginal renderings have it, perseverance. It's the force of the word patience. Perseverance. And the text is not speaking of perseverance as a fatalistic endurance where you put your head down and, well, you just somehow or other you're going to get through it. This perseverance is joyful. It's joyful. Even in the face of false religion and all its effects in the world around us, it's joyful. Because the truth is, there is glory to follow. This morning we referred to a text to which I bring your attention again in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. There is the foundation of our perseverance. We go on as the people of God because there is glory in the offering. We can't see it. We can't really conceive of it. But I can tell you on the basis of what we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So, with joyful patience or perseverance, we wait for that day. And it doesn't matter to us then what happens in the world. I don't mean that we ignore what happens in the world, but that it doesn't determine what our attitude is at any one time. Yes, sometimes, including now, it looks very daunting. But the people of God know something. What they know is that the day of glory is going to dawn. The day of glory. 
So the joy of hope against apostasy. What a thought for us in a world that is overrun by apostasy, even in so-called evangelical circles. The joy of hope. We can live in hope, in contentment, and indeed with joy. Not the joy that is that charismatic delusion, but the joy that comes from knowing Christ and knowing that what he has told his people and what he has purchased for them by his own sacrifice will indeed come to pass. May God give you grace to think much upon that hope tonight. We with patience wait for it. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee again tonight for the grace that thou hast shown us to come to thy word, for the work of thy spirit to lead us to thy word and to enable us to consider it. Truly, Lord, we pray that we may not miss the encouragement of thy word. So easy when we see all that goes on in the religious world around us and in the secular world around us, so easy to become dispirited and to wonder what's the use of persevering. But thou hast told us again tonight that there is glory in the offing. And we rejoice in those who are already enjoying that glory. We pray for grace to maintain that which thou hast given to us. O Lord, hear our cry, we pray. Help us ever to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. O Lord, we long for the day to come when he that shall come will come and will no longer tarry. So, Lord, apply the word to every soul tonight. Grant that it may be a cause for true contentment of heart in the days of the chaos in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.